truth in the Bible. And that's this. For God to be with us, he must save us. In order for God to be with us, he must save us. The good news is, that is the gospel. We've talked a lot about the gospel over the past several months. The good news is the gospel is that God did want to be with us and that he did send us his son, Jesus, who alone could save us. He's the greatest gift the world could ever receive. But the gift that Jesus is and that he gives doesn't automatically come to us. Just knowing he's there doesn't do us any good. We need to understand why we need this gift and how to receive it. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be on a series called The Gift of Life and talking about why do we need this gift and how do we receive the gift of Christ, the gift of life. We don't want this gift to be like a lot of Christmas gifts where we don't either understand it or know what to do with it. Like a guy I heard the other day who got himself a Christmas gift. It was a smart TV. It outsmarted him. He couldn't figure out how to work it. Couldn't figure out how to set it up. As a format, we're going to use the acrostic gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. And that gospel is going to be summed up this way, so we can put it up on the screen, called the, the six, uh, the words of life. Life in six words. And you can see it, maybe. Oh, yeah, so now you're going to hear it. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God. Yes? Yes. God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance. Seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held in eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job and odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse it. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny. Our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited. Black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God, it's like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, 
choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection with silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up with good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe. But all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you can give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list. Because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says as part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone dying in place. And that someone got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man. Fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him, and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. If I had the dreads, I could have done that. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, actually, the gentleman who just shared that with you is part of the same family of ministry teams humble beast that uh, Brian Winchester, who was here last week, they're part of that same uh, family of ministry poets. So um, you probably didn't grab all that. I know I've watched it several times, and I'm still getting more out of it each time I watch it. So if you want to see more of it, you can go to YouTube and look for The Life in Six Words. In fact, I think the first slide I have up here, or a slide that we we should be able to get to, will summarize those six words that we're going to cover uh, this week, we're going to look at the first two, but just so to go over that together, God, yeah, there we go, God created us, us to be with him, our sins separate us from God, sins cannot be removed by good deeds, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again, everyone who trusts in him has eternal life, life with Jesus starts now and forever. 
So uh, a little bit different format for you to grab that truth in that, that we just saw, but hopefully it'll stir you up to, to lay hold of what uh, was actually communicated in this truth. And so we're going to look at these first two areas today. Uh, first of all, we're answering the question, why are we separated from God? And the first great truth is God created us to be with him. And so we're going to look at several scriptures. We're going to fly through um, many scriptures to, to look at this truth together. So try to hang on with me. We're going to look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we're no better place to start than the beginning. And the beginning, beginning, way back beginning, eternal beginning, we see this truth. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And I'll get back to the other two here in a minute. But in an eternity past was the Word. That's what this is telling us. In eternity past was the Word. The Word was. At the very least, this means there was always communication, and that involves communion and relationship. This Word was with God. And who is this Word? The Word was God. You say, oh, well, God was with himself. Well, yeah, not, but it's not like when you're with yourself, by yourself. There's a, actually a, a, a two-ness to God. And we learn later there's a three-ness to him because there's also the Holy Spirit. But God, uh, the Word, was in the beginning with God. There was the Word who was God and, who was, and God who was God. So there was the Word who was God and God who was God. Are you getting confused yet? But that's the truth. The scripture presents the one God who exists in three persons, and right now we're focused on the Word and God. In fact, we see that this God who came to be with us is Jesus Christ the Son. So John 1.14, that should be up on the screen as well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among or with us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So back to John 1, verses 3 and 4. Everything was made through the Word. Everything was made through the Son. And in the Word was life, and the very life was the light of men. Kind of confusing there, but what it means, light is a common image in Scripture. And what it means here is the light was the revelation of the truth and holiness of the life of the Word. Life that was light was the revelation of the truth and the holiness of the Word. So for people to have life is to receive and trust the truth of God in his holiness, that is, his perfection. So the main thing I want you to get out of this is Father and Son, and later we would see the Holy Spirit, the three in one God, had perfect communion, perfect relationship with each other uh, before creating man. So when God created people, he didn't create people because he was lonely. He didn't create people out of a need. He wasn't singing the song, Find Me Somebody to Love, right? Uh, He already had perfect love with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when he created man, he did not create man out of need. He created man with a design to set his love upon him. As in human marriage, the husband and wife relationship is the priority relationship. Yet out of that relationship, because of love... Of the love they share in their union, they love their children. They love, the love they have for their children flows out of their love for one another.
out of the union they have, they love their children. They, the love they have for their children flows out of their love for one another. They delight in their children. We're talking without sin here. Sin makes that kind of messy. But, um, but parents delight in their babies not because the infants do things for them. But they delight to love their infants. So, therefore, we have this picture representing today's focus of God created us to be with them of a baby because that same kind of free love that we choose to set upon our, our babies, our children, is the same kind of love that God has set upon us, only though his love is infinite and eternal. So as parents, uh, we enjoy being with our kids, relating to them according to their capacity as infant, toddler, young child, so on, all the way up to adulthood. So it is with God in creating man. He delighted to create people, to share the love that God, the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit shared. So this wasn't a new thing for God to love, and uh, he... He created people in order to love them with the love that he already had within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created people who would have the life, nature, and capacity to receive his love and receive his truth in mutual enjoyment and trust. That's why he gave the people the gift of life for his glory. That's why God created man in his image. So we see that in Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God handcrafted man and woman up close and personal in perfect environment. We'll see this. You'll see this in Genesis 2, but we're not going to look at that on the screen, but just to give you a broad overview of that. Um, so God formed man out of the ground and breathed in him the breath of life. God planted a garden, a perfect environment, and set man in it, told him to work it, and guard it and keep it. And then God said to himself, it's not good for man to be alone. Yes, God would be with man, but he purposed that there would also be human, human relationships as well. God wanted there to be lots of people because he told the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. God loves big, huge families like billions. There's billions of us. And so that was his intent. Um, so then God says, I better make a, a suitable helper for the man in order for them to begin to multiply. And so Adam goes on to findmeasuitablehelper.com and names everything from aardvarks to zebras, but no match was found. And then God um, puts the man to sleep, takes one of his ribs, and makes a woman for Adam. He brings her to the man who then says, where have you been all my life? Hey, let's get married. And the woman says, oh, this is all happening so fast. Should, should I get a, a, a dress? No, nah, honey, look fine the way you are. You don't need it. Who should we invite? Uh, I think God. So that's kind of how that went. Kind of reading between the lines in, in the original Hebrew. Now, God establishes marriage as the fundamental human relationship. No two people are with one another like husband and wife. In fact, later we learn that that, that is the meaning of marriage. It pictures and is fulfilled in the relationship of Christ, the Son of God, to his people. The Apostle John confirms at the end of the story, when I say the story, I'm talking the Bible is all one big story because that's what it is, a true story. Uh, at the end of the story, God will dwell with man, likening the relationship to that of a bride and her husband. So you see that in Revelation 21, 2 and 3. That should be available too on the screen. I saw the holy city... This is John in a vision. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So clearly, this has been God's plan all along. He really wanted to be with people and people to be with him. This wasn't an afterthought. It was his plan all along. So God created man to share himself with man, to be with us, so that we could enjoy his glory and enjoy fellowship with other people who enjoy his glory. But obviously, something went wrong. And that brings us to the next point. That is, our sins separate us from God. Our sins separate us from God. God warned Adam, the first dude, not to disobey him and that the consequences would be death. So you see that in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat, freely eat, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we go on from there, and and, uh, I'll just comment on some passages from Genesis 3 that shows that man's sin was not trusting God. Under the crafty word of the serpent, the woman began coming under the influence of the serpent's lies and began doubting God's word and his goodness. Uh, They thought they knew better than God. They thought that they could be like God in the sense that, uh, that they could determine what is good and evil for themselves. They declared independence from God and God and disobeyed him. So that sin, not trusting God, not trusting his word, declaring independence from God, uh, disobedience to God. Now, we think death is just a natural part of our existence. We may try to ignore it, and it may be a taboo topic, especially for our wealthy Westerners who think we can solve everything with technology and money. But uh, we need to know that death is not an inevitable part of being human. It's a consequence of sin, just as God told Adam and Eve. In the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And then we see in Genesis 3, 7, should be on the screen, that then the eyes of both of them were opened. So when they ate of the fruit, they disobeyed God. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We tend to think of death only as physical. We think of death as a stopping of physical functions only. And then decay back to dust. Well, of course, physical death is part of, that is a major part of what death is. But physical death is a symptom of spiritual death. Because when our first parents sinned, obviously they didn't immediately physically die. They didn't just keel over dead. But they did immediately spiritually die. That is, they became separated from God, relationally and spiritually. And that is a, that is a very significant part of what death is. Physical death is a symptom of spiritual death. And so one of the first symptoms of death, spiritual death they experienced, was the immediate shame they felt. That's a sign of spiritual death. They covered themselves from one another, and then they heard God walking in the garden, as he no doubt normally would have done, and his fellowship with them as a father would be with his children. But now instead of being glad to see him, they hid themselves from him, which is another symptom of death, trying to hide yourself from God. Being separated and alienated from God, we hide from Him. We don't want to be exposed to Him. Our sin has killed the life-giving relationship we would have had with God. It's our sin. 
Death is not hardwired into humanity. It's a consequence. And in uh, Genesis 3.9, I don't have that one up on the screen, but we read that God called to the man asking him a question he never had to ask him before because Adam would have never thought of hiding from him before. Where are you? Now, when God asks questions, it's not because he's seeking information because he already knows, but he's calling for people to, get, to take an account and, of themselves and their actions and their motives. So when, when God asked that question, what was in his question was this. What happened to our relationship? How did we become alienated? And Adam answers. Genesis 3.10. I think that one would be on the screen. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, Adam was afraid of God. That's something he never felt before. Being afraid of God. Because he was naked. Now, this was the neophyte sinner's way of expressing his shame. It's kind of like a little kid who, um, before they even tell you what they've done wrong, Mommy and Daddy, I was hiding from you because I was afraid because I knew you'd be mad at me. And they haven't even yet said what they've done wrong. You know they've done something wrong because they're hiding from you. And that's kind of how Adam was. Well, I was naked. Well, he couldn't yet give, he couldn't, had not yet verbalized, I knew that, uh, that you were going to punish me. I was ashamed before you. So the Q&A continues. God asks, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And Adam said, the woman you gave to be with me did it. So that's been carrying on ever since, right? Yeah. She gave to me and I ate. And God said to the woman, what have you done? She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God then curses the serpent. Yet within that curse, he announced there would be uh, an offspring from the woman who would overcome the serpent. And then God announces the consequences to the woman and the man. Relational pain for the woman, especially in childbearing and toward her husband. So it's going to be really hard with your relationship with children and with your husband. And to the man, uh, work is going to be a pain for you until you die. And that's played out through history, hasn't it? So what we get from this is brokenness or separation in our human relationships reflects and is a consequence of brokenness or separation in our relationship with God. And then Genesis 3 closes with God banishing man from the garden and from access to the tree of life. So that symbolizes man's separation from God and says you can't have access to, to the tree of life, to eternal life, unless and until God provides a way for you to re- regain, for you to gain eternal life. And your relationship back with God. Until God's gift of life comes to you. So we know that the pain and grief of death of loved ones is a pain of separation from one another. We know that. We know it's because we can no longer enjoy the love relationship with people whom we've loved. How much more devastating to God's design for us is separation from God. And it's all the worse for us if we are not grieved over that separation. So we grieve over the loss of those we love because we lose the relationship. We can't be with them anymore. And we should be that much more grieved in our separation from God. Instead of kind of having this attitude, you know, God and I have an amicable separation. It's okay. You know, we know we don't get along well, and so we do, he doesn't bother me, I don't bother him. We just keep our distance from one another, and, and that's safe. Rather than grieving that the worst separation I have in my life is separation from God. 
And we might think, well, besides, it's God who, who has these unreasonable expectations. It's not me. He, his expectations for the relationship are too high. And, of course, that's wrong. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But why did all people since Adam have to suffer for his sin? Um, man would have stood in a perfect relationship to God through Adam. God didn't change his design that Adam's obedience would impact the whole human race. Had Adam obeyed, it would have been blessing for the whole human race. Just as his later son, Jesus, in his obedience, blessed the whole human race. But in Adam's sin, consequences fell upon the whole human race. And you see that in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That can get pretty complicated, but basically what that passage is saying is this. As a result of Adam's sin, death entered the world and came upon all people. All people enter into the world alienated from God and spiritually dead and will die physically by virtue of Adam's sin. Again, death came upon all people through Adam's sin and all have sinned because all are spiritually dead and thus are separated and alienated from God. Or, as it says in another passage that I don't have on the screen for you, Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Yes, by nature and practice, apart from the new life in Christ, we are the walking dead. We may not walk around saying, like TV show. Some of us do that. But we, we function, but we don't have spiritual life. Now, the Bible always treats us as accountable and responsible for our sin. Yes, Adam started it, but the Bible always addresses us as responsible for our own sin. We may not feel that sin is all that bad, but God has shown how bad our sin is by the penalty for it, death, physical, spiritual death. Because we're 100% dependent on God to live. In our sin, we presume to live independently from God. Uh, death is the just penalty or consequence for this rebellion. As much as we grieve over death, and that is why we have for the, this woman grieving over grieving, and she, we're saying that the grief is over the consequences, but the grief should be over the cause as well as the consequences. We grieve over death, we grieve over the cause, sin. So as much as we grieve over death, we should grieve that much more over its cause, sin. Why do we dread death? You say, what a stupid question. But I've got to ask it. Why? Because if death is just a natural part of life, it's just something that comes, that happens. The reason it causes such sorrow and grief and fear is because, obviously, we want to live. Why do we want to live? It's built into us to want to, to, to live because God gave people the gift of life so we could know Him, love Him, enjoy Him, be with him and know and love and be with other people. But our sin wrecks and ruins life the way God intended it to be. Sin makes things not the way it's supposed to be. And that's what we see in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, and that one should be on the screen, and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is everything in us, about us, and that comes out of us that falls short of God's glory. That is, his perfection 
And his perfection is seen in his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his truth, his love. Everything about God is absolutely 100% infinitely perfect. And that should be our highest joy because nobody else is him. Nobody else is like that. Nobody else is perfect, holy, like the way God is. So God created us to delight in his glory, to be satisfied in his glory, to reflect his glory, to rejoice in his glory, to be happy in his glory, to live for his glory. To enjoy His glory and share it in enjoying His glory with others. In short, loving and living for God's glory is a huge part of what it is to be human. It's, to be human is not to sin. That is a choice that we made that added it on to us. But essential to humanity is not sin. That's good news because that means we can be cured. That's the gospel as we'll unfold over the next couple of weeks. Human beings created in God's image Loving and living for God's glory is essential to our humanity. Our sin didn't wipe out this drive in us to love and live for His glory, but it did warp it. It didn't wipe it out, but it warped that drive to to glory in God so that uh, we seek the joy and fulfillment that we were meant to find in God and other things. Not only in things that that we had associated as being sinful themselves, but good things that we've turned into God things, like Food, sports, career, music, money, entertainment, friends, hobbies, relationships. Anything can become a warped, take take the place of God's glory in our lives. So, your 18-month-old clenches his or her little fist and frowns and says, No! Mine! You ever seen that? My kids never did that, but some of your kids probably did. I, you know, our memories are short, Right? Or the 18-year-old says, mine, to live as I want. Or the 48 and 88-year-old say, mine, my life. I don't need your help, God. Or if I do ask for your help, just make sure it's on my terms and you do what I say, right? You know, when we talk that way, that's death talk. That's just another manifestation of being spiritually dead rather than delighting in the glory of God. It's the way we express our spiritual separation from God, whether we ever utter those words that way or not. So in the next two weeks, we're going to consider what we need to have life that is God-compatible and how we receive this gift of life. But I want to leave you with a couple thoughts. First, since God created you to be with him, just as a parent wants to be with his child, do you want to be with him? Do you want to be with God? Is that a desire you have? It's, it's in you to do that. Do you know and believe this is God's heart, that he longs to be in a love relationship with you? What could be greater than to be known by God and to know him, to be loved by God and love him since he's your creator, who created you in his image? All your desires find their ultimate fulfillment in God to be with God forever. And if you're a Christian already, do you know how God delights to be with you? Do you know that? He really does. He totally enjoys being with you. And though it's true that he always is in one sense, do you ever make the intentional time to be with him? Just as you would in any other relationship, except this is God and he deserves more than any other relationship. And second thing, Maybe you doubt God's goodness or that he is all that glorious. Maybe you doubt he's good and he's glorious. Maybe you feel he has let you down or you have had bad experiences with church people or that God really doesn't care for you. 
Do you know that the only problem between you and God is your sins? The only problem between God and I was my sins. And I say was because in Christ, he's taken care of that. It doesn't mean I don't sin anymore. It just means sin is no longer the issue between God and I. But if you're outside of Christ, then that is the issue you've got to deal with. You say, well, you don't know what I've been through. I've been wronged. I've tried to do the best I can with all the bad things that have happened to me. Why should I be blamed for all my problems with God? And the answer to that is God knows and cares more than you do about everything you've been through. He knows totally everything you've been through. The issue between you and God is not the bad things that have happened to you, but the bad things in you and that have come out of you. God has a plan to right every wrong done to you, but it begins with you recognizing your wrongs are what separate you from God. It begins there. That is your biggest problem, along with the fact that you are spiritually dead. And I hate to leave everybody dead here, but we'll really get into the better stuff next week. But uh, just to close, we're going to go back over the six words of life. God created us to be with him. Our sins separated us from God. That's why we are separated from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Paying that price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And how do you receive that? Everyone who trusts in him has eternal life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. So we'll get into that good news over the next couple of weeks. Until then, we um, want to continue on our time of worship. I'll pray. Father, you're so good. You are so perfectly glorious. Thank you that you didn't leave me in my separated, alienated state from you. It was nothing that I could have done. Everything that I could have done would have never resolved that. Only what you provide in the gift of life in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we give thanks for that. Amen.